Thank you for joining us for today's thought leadership episode. Today, we're fortunate enough to have Michael Danella. Michael is the corporate compliance officer of Murphy Oil Corporation. Murphy Oil is an international oil and gas exploration and production company based in El Dorado, Arkansas. Prior to joining Murphy in 2012, he served as vice president and chief compliance officer and the assistant general counsel to With Pharmaceuticals, now Pfizer. And Michael also served in a number of With global divisions in his career there. Prior to WIF, Michael spent several years with AT&T with assignments including state and federal regulatory, international, commercial, and trade policy counseling. Michael began practicing law with Troutman Sanders in Atlanta, and he is a graduate of mathematics from Wesleyan University and University of Chicago Law School. He is a member of the New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Georgia Bar. Michael, welcome. Uh, thank you, Gordon. Um, I, I'd first like to make a brief disclaimer. Uh, the, uh, the views that I express today are my own. Uh, as you mentioned, I've had uh, uh, some prominent employers in the past, and I enjoy a prominent employer today, but the views are my own uh, based on uh, a long career in, as you mentioned, different industries. Uh, right now, oil and gas, prior to that, pharmaceuticals, and prior to that, telecommunications, as well as private law practice. But thank you for having me. Oh, we're certainly glad to have you this morning. Well, without further ado, let's dive right in. Michael and I were fortunate enough to be on a panel for Compliance Week earlier this year, and Michael does have some interesting views on corporate compliance. So, Michael, I really want to start there. What does it mean to you to have a culture of compliance in third-party risk management? Well, the, the, the culture, uh, I think, is... Uh, a very key aspect. You know, I often speak uh, within my organization and at conferences about kind of two general components of compliance, and particularly compliance as it pertains to third parties, and the first of which I call the infrastructure, and that means all of the technology, all the training materials, all of the policies and procedures that you have to address the risk of third parties. And those are, those are very, uh, very important uh, to keep up with, keep up with the latest and, and greatest. Um, but the second part is the culture. And and I say culture is just as important, if not more. Uh, we can all, when we think about what I've referred to as infrastructure, which includes policies, I'm sure we can all think of instances and organizations that we're a part of or that we've seen where there's a policy, a written policy or a stated policy that says one thing, and then you see uh, leaders or key people within the organization doing something different. So everyone figures out right away that the policy is not real or it's not mm -hmm. consistently uh, lived in. The culture is what people actually see and what people actually do and what people actually expect of each other. And building a culture of compliance means uh, regardless of what policies we have, you know, they can be the latest and the greatest, or they can be maybe lagging a little bit, but still adequate, or they might be inadequate. The culture, you know, how people behave, what expectations we have of each other with respect to compliance with the law and encouraging ethical conduct. That That's what the culture is. That's what right. I think is, is really important. And you got to pay attention to both as a compliance professional. 
So do you feel that that's one of the bigger struggles with organizations as it pertains to third-party risk management today? I think it is one of the bigger struggles for a couple of reasons. And uh, one of those is, you know, like anything, I kind of go back to my, you know, mathematics background. It's like, you know, what is the problem? What is the issue? And recognizing the issue, even though you might frame it a little bit differently than it actually is, but it, it does give you a point from which to decide how to address the issue. So with respect to third parties, one of the ways that I think is useful for organizations, and again, uh, I'm in oil, ga oil and gas now, but th this, this principle applies across all industries. You know, the corruption is a risk. Um, we, we talk about uh, FCPA violations, the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but there, there are virtually similar anti-corruption laws in, in every um, country in the world these days, but, you know, every developing, every developed country. And um, the, the, the anti, so that's a major risk in the, in the oil and gas industry. But uh, studies have shown over the last several years, I mean, going back uh, to the early, uh, say, 2010, the early teens, that 90% of the FCPA enforcement actions that occur across all industries involve third parties. And and so recognizing that, you know, if that's a, if corruption is a risk in your industry, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a corrupt organization, it just means that you may be working in environments and locations uh, where corruption is a reality. And so therefore, it becomes mm -hmm. a risk to you. Then if you recognize that third parties, like I say, 90% of FCPA enforcement actions involve third parties, then it can help you to focus your efforts to managing that risk. If you're going to manage that risk, then you have to effectively manage third parties. So accurately identifying it, that's one of the struggles. The other one that I see is this kind of goes back um, some time. Uh, it, it tends to be the case for people that have been uh, in business a longer period of time, and it is the view that, well, if it's a third party, I don't really control them. You know, I if I have a third party performing a certain function or doing a, a certain project, um, and they do something bad, they do they violate a um, a regulation, they violate a law, uh, they they fail on a safety inspection. Well, that's that's really not my fault. That's a third party. I don't control it. And that's a major misconception. I mean, we can state it very easily that you can always or almost always outsource tasks, but you can't always outsource the responsibility. Um, you know, I've seen that in all kinds right. of industries where, you know, you hire lots of, you know, you, you can do a flow chart of of critical tasks to get a project done or to get a product produced or to discover oil, you know, you know all of these critical tasks along the way, uh, many of them, if not all of them, you could outsource those tasks. But if you are uh, the organization that ultimately is producing that product, providing that service, uh, you can't really outsource the risk. So understanding that third parties present a risk, 
understanding that that's a risk that you can't outsource. You can manage it. Uh, you can mitigate it. You might even be able to get insurance protection for bad outcomes, but ultimately you can't outsource the risk. So you have to take that risk on. And so, you know, making sure that the, um, the organization understands that puts you in a much better position to go ahead and deal with how do I manage this risk? How do I mitigate this risk? So th th that's... No, that's absolutely correct in the finance industry as well. We constantly tell everyone that we speak with that you can hire somebody to do something for you, but the risk of what they're doing is always on you. Mm -hmm. You never really get away from that. So mm -hmm. from your perspective, how are organizations overall doing with this third-party risk thing? Are we getting better? Are we staying the same? I think we're getting better slowly. Um, you know, I think the best organizations tend to learn from each other. I mean, I go to conferences and I'm, I'm um, learning from other organizations. I'm sure they're, they're sharing notes that I provide and that I think that's good for everybody. That's good for the businesses. That's good for the customers. It's good for the shareholders that, that we learn to do this better. And, and some of that is learning about things that don't really work. You know, I mentioned before the infrastructure and the right. culture. And so there are lots of tools available and tools are essentially the same as tools have always been. And by that, I don't mean that there's not better technology because there certainly is. And there certainly is better software and tracking things that, that can greatly assist organizations in managing the risk of third parties. But what I mean when I say tools are like tools always are, they have capabilities and they can only do what they're capable of doing. So it's important that you understand the capability and, and the limitations of tools. I mean, just to, to give a uh, kind of a brief, uh, not not so complicated example of what I'm talking about. Um, sure. Uh, questionnaires, um, e even electronic questionnaires where you have the various third parties, you know, fill out certain information about their organizational structure, about their activities, about, you know, uh, their history, commercial history, et cetera, has in some cases been described as, you know, this is something you have to do as part of your due diligence uh, of third parties, but also, you know, part of your ongoing monitoring and management of them. And they can be very helpful uh, with, with certain assumptions in mind. And the assumptions are that if, if, they're, if the vendor it, itself is filling out this questionnaire, um, is the information they're providing accurate i mean do they end do they understand the question and so you know I, i've heard uh to the extent these things have been discussed you know you're all kinds of war stories about well they don't some are just too busy you know some get like thousands of these questionnaires they don't they don't have time to answer yeah. all of them so they've developed a standard form and you know that, that's there are practical considerations that we all have to deal with but sure. um you know i guess the point is that a questionnaire is a tool. Uh, you can't sort of blindly rely on the information that's provided there. I've even had, as many other of my counterparts and other companies have told me, they've had questionnaires where the the third party has said, you know, well, what what do you want me to put on there? I've, I've had people yeah. inside organizations say, you know, what do you want me to put? And if they, wow. they don't care, they're not thinking about it. So, you know, you have to understand that's a limitation of that particular tool. So, in general, I say tools tools are getting better. They're better in the sense that they're you know, focusing on the actual risks that we have, but 
whatever they may be, it's it's important to to understand the, both the capability and the limitations of those. And so or, overall, I think many organizations are in fact getting better, but most organizations that I come in contact with tell me they still feel, despite all these wonderful tools that are out there, despite you know good people, that uh, this area is so big, uh, and I, I haven't found any company that says they feel they have a 100% handle on what their third parties are doing all the time. So right. you know you're forced to prioritize which ones are the highest risk, which ones are the medium risk. You know what tools can help me prioritize, and even then you wonder if you've got the prioritization correct. So. No, I mean, as I was saying, that was a long way of, of, of getting to your question about how organizations are doing. I think better, but there's more to be done. Well, certainly <laughs> the regulators are going to think there's always more to be done. You're mm -hmm. in oil and gas energy. The energy vertical being a protected vertical is one of the most regulated verticals in the country. You know, you've got energy, healthcare, and finance that mm -hmm. typically are the three most regulated verticals that we have in America today, how does your organization or how do you view more specifically that regulation and how do you meet those compliance needs that those regulators put on you? Again, uh, you know, with keeping with the theme of, of managing third parties, it's, it's a matter of, you know, the cliche, the risk assessment. So you've got all these regulations that are right. developing. And, you know, maybe the regulators wouldn't like me to say this, but I'm, I'm going to say it. I've said it in rooms where they're present. All of these regulations are not equal in terms of the risk that they present to organizations. And when I say risk, I'm not just talking about financial risk. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, how difficult is it to comply? What are the consequences to the public, to customers, to share of, of noncompliance? I mean, obviously, we, we want to comply with everything. But I think it's important um, to 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 be intelligent about the use of resources, uh, and with respect to the regulations that are changing, increasing, developing, shifting, et cetera, you don't want to apply a lot of resources to small problems at the expense of not putting enough resources into bigger problems. So part of the job. I think of the compliance professional is not only to know the regulations as best you can, but to uh, to to prioritize those regulations. I mean, to uh, to make a judgment, to make a recommendation. Mm -hmm. You know, and you might, you have to be flexible because things change all the time. Right. Uh, so be flexible enough to you know to to adjust. But I think part of what people are relying on you to do is to say which one of these things requires a lot of resource or a lot of resources, a lot of attention right now, and which ones can be appropriately handled with more modest resources. I mean, I can give you just you know, one simple example of what I'm talking sure. about here. Uh, in the FCPA arena, which again, um, I deal with a lot, um, the uh, FCPA resource guide came out uh, in a I think it was 2012, and this was the first time that the enforcement authorities, the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission had actually written down their 
uh, enforcement priorities. Um, and this used to be like this kind of amorphic area of law where you kind of had a few cases, you had a statute that been long periods of time where there was no case law. But so this this was very helpful. And one of the things, and so one of the kind of folkloric ideas about the FCPA for a long time was you've got to be careful um, with meals with government officials. I mean, if you have like too right. fancy a dessert, that would be a bribe or, you know, you, you sure you want to have champagne at a at a meal with a government officials. And, and they kind of came out, not just the U.S. enforcement authorities, but the famous uh, U.K. serious fraud uh, office, you know, they prominently said, you know, we are not the serious champagne office. We're the serious frauds. We don't care about, you know, what kind of champagne you have. You know, we're concerned about serious forms of bribery. And similarly, uh, with the U.S. enforcement authorities, they said, you know, companies are spending all kinds of money tracking meals with government officials. And we just, oh, sure, you don't want meals to turn into bribes, but that's not what we're worried about. We, you know, we don't want to see all these fancy resources and lots of, of uh, uh, money devoted to tracking meals at the expense of ignoring more serious forms of bribery. That's what we want to see. We want you going after the serious stuff. So that's kind of an example where the where the the government enforcement authorities have even told us, you know, you've got to prioritize your risk, and we want you going after and addressing the important stuff. They're not all the same. I mean, so uh, that was a big change because lots of people, particularly people I've been around a long time, they thought the biggest FCPA risk was, you know, do you have too much dessert and a meal? And that's, that's <laughs> not the risk at all. Okay. You know? <laughs> well, that's an interesting perspective. Well, do you have any tips regarding tailoring third-party risk policies to meet your organization's needs? Uh, well, the tips I would say is, is there are, again, understand that it is a risk. I mean, everybody should be doing their own risk analysis of their organizational business or if it's a nonprofit. There's still what I would call a business associated with that, but everyone should should, should be able to uh, identify on a prioritized basis the risk that the organization faces in its business. And I think in most cases, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm making up a number, but I'll say 90% of the cases, the risk of the organization parallel with the risk of third parties. So your, your, your third party risk is gonna be uh, consistent with the risk of your business, so you know you identify those risks. You know I've, I've been picking on the FCPA, so I'll I'll, I'll continue picking on, on that. But um, so sure. if, if that's one of yours, and, and and there are others. I mean, you know, in the banking, I know anti-money laundering has become you know much more uh, important a risk than it was several years ago. Uh, trade sanctions Absolutely. is a risk. Um, those those are things that you know we all face to a greater extent or another. But um, so identifying the risk, but understand your own organization and how it works and how decisions get made. You know, I mentioned before this thing about, well, they're third, they're third parties. I can't really control them. Now, that may be uh, a sentiment at some organizations, and it may not be at others. But to the extent that it is or isn't, people, and I say you have to understand your own organization. Do people understand 
that third-party risk is a risk of your own organization. If they don't understand that, you have to make sure they understand it. Like in, in oil and gas, for example, we have on, on most um, oil uh, discovery projects, you know, uh, a couple of companies or you know, two to four companies that work this together, and one of those companies is the operator. You know, that's the one that actually physically um, provides the equipment, uh, the people to actually go in with the seismic studies and do the drilling, et cetera. But the others uh, are primarily financial partners. They're investors. They do participate in the management. But there had been this view that if you're if you're a non-operator, that is, if you're kind of just a an investor uh, manager, then you you you're really not responsible for the activities of the of the operator, and that's not true. I mean, law has you know there have been cases where the non-operator has been responsible for bad behavior of the operator, particularly in cases where the non-operator knew that the operator was engaging in um, violations of the applicable regulations and, and didn't do anything about it. There have been other cases where non-operators have been liable uh, when they didn't necessarily know of improper behavior by the operator, but they should have known. Uh, and right. in, in, in some cases where the non-operator uh, has a, a very small interest, uh, there, have been, there have been cases that said that, uh, that the failure of that non-operator to try to exercise its influence over the operator, no matter how small that uh, interest may be or how small that influence may be, the failure to even try to exercise it uh, may, may cause that uh, non-operator to be liable for, by virtue of failing a good faith test. So, you know, understanding... You know, understanding the, the the risk that they present, and you know there are there are practical tools that you can use. I mean, I give another uh, kind of simple uh, example, but um, typically on on construction projects, like in oil and gas, or even in in pharmaceuticals, you know, with manufacturing, but but anything where, where you have a substantial construction or or a project, and there's a uh, there's kind of a technical uh, construction agreement invariably it will include several provisions, but one of which will deal with compliance with the law and compliance with anti-corruption law in particular. And you know these contracts could be 30 pages, 100 pages. Uh, the the folks that are out there uh, on the ground, you know, digging the holes, operating the machines, uh, doing the quality assurance testing, uh, they haven't necessarily read the contract, you know, and won't necessarily uh, know or, or be particularly interested in every aspect of the contract. But sometimes on, on this particular risk and for others, uh, you know, safety, it can be helpful just to have a, you know, the, the man or whoever the, the uh, relationship manager within your organization is and their counterpart for the third party. Uh, sometimes a letter, just a plain, you know, one-page, plain English letter that says, you know, dear okay. uh, Sam Smith, uh, as you know, we are committed to operating uh, in uh, full compliance with all applicable laws, including the anti-corruption laws, and operating with integrity, and as indicated in, you know, page 35, section 2 of our contract. So this letter is just uh, affirming 
our commitment to such principles, you know, sign Joe Smith, please, please sign below to acknowledge or, or something like that. But it's just kind of a, a plain language reinforcement. And there are other periodic reinforcements um, that one Great can tip. engage in to, to just kind of uh, at the operating level, remind the third parties, you know, uh, you know we're, we're trying to get this thing done. We're trying to get this thing done on time. We're trying to get it done, you know, on budget, et cetera, and all those things. But we, we're also trying to get this thing done properly in accordance with the law and regulations right. and respect of people and the environment and all that kind of stuff. That all counts, too. We, we remain committed to following the rules. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. One of the, that's an excellent tip. You know, I think that's something that everybody can take away from here. For our last question, I want to go back to our presentation at Compliance Week in New York City. We had a section in that particular talk where we talked about risk management and senior management, and your perspective on that was so unique. I'd really like you to share it with us today. Do you okay. feel that risk management gets enough attention from senior management and the board? And I know I that's that's really yeah. a loaded question, but yeah. I yeah. really liked your perspective. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult issue. Uh, I think that when you look at all of the cases that continue to come out every day uh, regarding various com compliance failures, uh, I mean. We can look at, I'm saying all these because they're, they're in the public, but, you know, we look at the admissions right. failures by uh, Volkswagen that are still being litigated. We look at the failures by Wells Fargo. I mean, they're still, you know, fallout from that. You know, executives have been changed there. Many executives have been changed out there at Wells Fargo. Um, we look at Walmart and the the um, the corruption issues uh you know, in Mexico and India and around the world, one would have to, and there, there are many, many other cases. I mean, cases are coming out like every couple of weeks. And you have to obviously say that as a general matter, uh, there are some boards that, and senior managers that are, that are not doing enough to, to take this seriously. And, and, and then the question goes to, okay, well, what, what was the compliance officer doing while all this is going on? What was the general counsel doing? You know, what are all the people that are supposed to be the control functions? What were they doing when all of this was going on? So I think the challenge is that the board and the senior management are very busy. They're very time constrained. They're under pressure. So right. um, as a compliance professional or a control uh, professional, it's your job to make sure that they know what they need to know. And given those constraints where, you know, they're, time, they're under time pressure, they're under performance pressure, et cetera, um, you've got to use the tools that you have. And I mean, for everybody, every organization, it, it might be different. But I'd say suppose, you know, if one way to think of it is suppose you were told you've got 10 minutes uh, before the board to get your message across, which is, I recognize for a lot of boards, that's a lot of time. So, but it, your, your message, what would you do? How would yes, you structure it, it? How would you structure it for 10 minutes? Okay, let's suppose they said, okay, you got five minutes. How would you effectively present your message in that five minutes? And, you know, think about it. Suppose it was two minutes. 
Um, and you get two minutes, and then, you know, this is a very critical, important message. But if you just, for a moment, think about if you only had two minutes, how would you do it? And the point is, it can be done if you, if you take it upon yourself to figure out how to do it. Uh, you know, you, I marvel uh, watching, watching TV newscasts, uh, these, these newscasters. I mean, they can, if you, if you think about it, they can give you a lot of information in a, um, in a 20 second soundbite. And, and I kind of study them. Yes, study journalists they do. And I, um, you know, what would I do if I, if I had only 20 seconds, what would I say? That's one way to do it. The other thing is organizations are, are complex and, um, getting things done, you know, understanding how things get done in the organization, even though there might be flow charts and, uh, organization charts and all that kind of stuff. When something is important enough and you have to get the message, then I, I say you have to rely on what you have and you have to rely on what I call political skills. And when I say political skills, I'm not talking about uh, the skills that politicians use, although some politicians are very, very good at what I'm about to describe. What I'm talking about is finding ways to connect with people that you need to be allies and resources and connecting with people that you need as allies and resources under circumstances where you have no formal authority over them whatsoever. And yes. uh, one person at a conference asked me, he's like, well, yeah, you know, that sounds right. You know, political skills, that's, that's what you need to get this stuff done. But how do you get political skills? And, and I hadn't thought about it before, but then as I thought about it, I said, well, there, there, there are people that are very good at it. If you look around, there, there are individuals that are very good at this stuff. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, kind of careerists that are very good at building themselves up and, you know, getting the next promotion, although people that are good at that, you know, I applaud them. But that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> people that tend to be good at it, but not always, I, I'd say two categories. One is college presidents, when you think about it, you know, the the organizational dynamics of a college, you know, strong-willed faculty, strong-willed students, you know, strong-willed administrators, and a college president that has to be the face of every problem, every issue. You know, mm -hmm. parents are more involved in college, but, but good college presidents not only handle all those things, but they often draw all of those constituents into being allies. And, and the best ones I've seen, I've been involved in colleges for a long time, and I marvel at how they do that. I mean, people are screaming at them one day, and the next day, you know, they're they're part of the task force and they're part of the, the you know, the working group to solve the problem. The other uh, group, I, I would say, is the, the clergy. Um, you know, heads of, of um, churches, synagogues, temples. I mean, they often are people with similar kinds of things. I mean, they have various. They're they're often uh, faith communities are are you know. Generally thought of to be unified, and, 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 and in most cases they are, but you know, when you get into the inner workings, there can be different ideas about how to achieve the goals. But the, the, you know, the best of these leaders I've seen, they, they have that knack of getting those rivals to get on the same page and work together as allies. So th those are two of the kinds of people I would look at to get political skills. When people ask me the question, you know, how do you get political, political skills? Think of think excellent of advice. Absolutely excellent advice. Well, Michael, uh, we're just about out of time. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us today. 
Is there anything that you'd like to add in closing? Uh, let's see. Just, uh, you know, I say this all the time. And, uh, again, uh, the infrastructure and the culture are, you know, both important. But the, at, at bottom, you know, what we're dealing with here uh, in third-party risk management and, you know, compliance and ethics and integrity, we're dealing with human endeavors. And so don't forget that human beings are complex organisms, and they have to be treated carefully. That's Yes, they do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're about out of time today. Michael, again, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Danella, Corporate Compliance Officer, Murphy Oil Corporation. I'm sure Michael wouldn't mind if you looked him up on LinkedIn. Uh, if you have any questions for him, you can also find me there or you can contact me at Venminder. Thank you for your time today.